This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Tanse, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm very excited and honored to have Caitlin Casper here with me today. She grew up in Southern West Ontario, a small community near Lake Simcoe. In Casper's Anishinaabeg family, everybody works in the public sector as police officers, educators, and social workers. And so when she graduated from Osgood Hall in 2011, she moved to Kenora to article at Legal Aid. By 2014, Casper, a single mother, had relocated to Toronto alongside her daughter and her son to work at Aboriginal Legal Services. As a senior staff lawyer at the Community Legal Clinic, she's an expert on police violence. She's also an expert on so many issues around Indigenous rights and Indigenous sovereignty. We talk a little bit about this and what's happening currently within the collective. Uh, Without further ado, Caitlin Casper. Hi, hi. Caitlin, thank you so much. Hi, hi, for being here. If you just want to introduce yourself, where you're from, a little bit about you. Thank you so much. Uh, So my name is Caitlin Casper, and I am the uh, senior lawyer with Aboriginal Legal Services located in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I am originally uh, from Chippewas of Georgina Island, First Nation, and uh, grew up there with my mother, and I have a younger brother. Um, my father's from Fort William First Nation near Thunder Bay. And I, in terms of kind of my background, uh, after graduating high school, I went to University of Toronto and did a degree in political science um, before going on to law school at Osgood Hall. Um, I moved north uh, to Kenora. Um, for those of you who are familiar, about two and a half hours east of Winnipeg. And I practiced um, criminal law and child welfare and did that for doing a lot of the remote First Nations communities in the Northwest corridor of the province uh, before uh, moving back down to a more familiar place where I grew up uh, in Toronto and have been working with Aboriginal Legal Services uh, for over seven years now. Um, So that's, yeah, that's kind of (laughs) who I am and where I'm from. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I'm speaking to like someone with a wealth of knowledge and I recognize like our time is so limited here, but I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of subjects. And just to begin, I want to know like, how are you currently feeling? I feel like we're living in a time of history where there's so much unknown happening within the collective, but there's also so much unknown happening within our own communities in regards to, um, you know, the mass graves and the unmarked graves now being found, uh, what we're facing in uh, the legal system as Indigenous people. And so there's so many narratives that are happening. And so how have you been the last year? Oh, it's definitely been a ride. Um, I definitely agree that I think that this is an unprecedented time uh, in our history as Indigenous people. There are Uh, a lot of issues that I feel like, uh, never mind the reconciliation, quote unquote, that's supposed to be happening with non-Indigenous people, settlers. I feel like us as a community, we're really starting to reconcile, even amongst ourselves, um, the process of colonization that we've gone through, and then also reconciling our own histories 
um, because I know I know that for a lot of us, we weren't taught and we never spoke about a lot of the horrors of uh, the residential school system, of the 60s scoop, of um, all of those fears and all those prejudices um, that have been put on us from settler mm-hmm. society. And so I feel like we are coming to terms to, with all of that past um, and at the same time trying to create a better future for ourselves and trying to assert our rights. And that I think is a very tumultuous time uh, to be in. Yeah, you brought up two really good points. One about reconciliation. And I just learned like the term reconciliation uh, to the general public can mean, you know, relationship building and good things. But reconciliation in the eyes of the Supreme Court actually means that they still like have the power. And I was curious to know, like, how would you define reconciliation? And is that true that I learned that from my cousin, Breen Willette, who's also a lawyer? (laughs) Oh, that's that's such a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) um i feel i feel like uh reconciliation isn't even um a power issue uh for the majority of people um i feel like reconciliation to a lot of people it's just enough to acknowledge what's happened and then Mm. there doesn't seem to be any impetus on how to move forward from that Um, And I feel like, you know, reconciliation is this word that's thrown around a lot, um, but without any type of meaningful action behind it. And I think if settlers are going to look at their founding documents, uh, the Constitution in which we are a founding nation, um, and nation, I mean, all of our nations, then you need to give weight to that um, and address it meaningfully in terms of allowing us to hold those powers within our nations. And that means letting go of some of their power. And that's Mm -hmm. where I really feel like the struggle is. That's what I'm seeing a lot of, too. I feel like um, we use the word reconciliation um, on the front because it makes us seem like good people, but not knowing like the depth of our actions require a lot more to actually see reconciliation happening. And I know a lot of people may be unfamiliar of, you know, what is a treaty or what are treaty rights? And so to the general public, could you just give kind of like an overview of the treaties and what that means? Sure. So... I think when, uh, and I feel like even for us as Indigenous people, there's a lot of work um, that we need to take on in terms of explaining to our own children mm-hmm. and even to the younger generations about what treaties are and how they are supposed to define who we are and how we interact with settler society um, more so than any type of legislation mm-hmm. uh, that's been put on us, such as the mm-hmm. Indian Act. Um and when you take a look at, you know, historically uh, treaties as being two, two very great nations attempting to reconcile how they were going to utilize the land and how they were going to share that space and what rights were owed uh, to each other, but then also uh, what we owed um, to our own people in order to remain sovereign. Um And all of those treaties were signed uh, with individualized nations because of the fact that you could not have one treaty that defined 
um, who we are on the West Coast versus, you know, centrally versus, you know, uh, on the East Coast. It was impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why there are so many treaties and each one of them different uh, and each one of them wholesomely ignored and devalued um, by the Indian Act, which came into force 10 years after Confederation. Um, so that and that Indian Act, uh, what it did was it made every single individual nation the same, labeled mm -hmm. us all as Indians and under carriage of the state and the responsibility of the state. And that completely um, took away all of our all of our individual sovereignty and rights and placed us all under one generic Indian term. And that, as we know, has been incredibly destructive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I think it's incredibly power because like at one point we weren't even allowed lawyers and here we are having indigenous people taking up and reclaiming those spots that we once weren't even allowed to be a part of. Um, I was reading, you know, I, for me, myself, I know a lot more about the Indian Act than I do about the treaties. And I realize I have a lot more to learn when it comes to the treaties. But one thing I have learned about the Indian Act is we all hold different perceptions on what we want to see done with it. And so I'm curious to know, like, what do you think needs to happen to move forward? Do you think there needs to be a dismantling of the Indian Act, a complete abolishment? Like, what do you want uh, the future to look like? <laughs> oh, um, well, I'm, I'm going to put it in the sense of when you think about the fact that the precursor uh, of legislation to the Indian Act was titled the Gradual Civilization Act. Mm. Uh, when you take a look at what actually the funding document of the Indian Act was, was for the purpose of civilizing uh, Indigenous people, you can really see the nuts and bolts of what that document is made of. And as far as I'm concerned, that entire document uh, needs to be dismantled. Mm -hmm. And we need to go back to those original treaties uh, that were signed. And if not signed, the government has an obligation to meet with those nations and to undergo that treaty making process. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, those are um, the true law that we have inherited from our ancestors and that we have rights to. Uh, so that's my personal position on it. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think what you're saying is like, we, the government has to recognize that it has to meet with all nations because we're not all the same. And I think the Indian Act has really done a good job of brushing us all with the same um, stroke of a paintbrush and like thinking all Indigenous people are all the same when we're all so different. And so I don't know much about like, so I live in Vancouver and it's unceded like traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Salem Tooth people and unceded means like no treaties were signed. So like what do they have to abide by if they're unceded, just their own laws? You know, I think it's, it's, you know, this is actually one of my favorite pieces of history, mm. because uh, if you take a look at the way that the treaties were signed, the treaties were signed running from the 1700s uh, with the Mi'kmaq um, in the East Coast, the Peace and Friendship Treaties. And you can see it through the 1700s up until um, Canada was essentially, uh, became a confederation that the treaties moved westward. Um, and you can mm. see also that as they move westward, the, um, treaties became more coercive, um, and they became more, 
based on what the government wanted as opposed to what indigenous people wanted. And that's because Canada was becoming more settled. There was more strength in numbers of non-indigenous people. And so the onus of uh, the crown or the state to act in good faith Mm -hmm. became less and less, the more and more powerful and numerous they became. Mm -hmm. And so actually once they got to British Columbia, um, they didn't even, the government didn't even bother signing treaties because they were just, they were so sure that they had just already had Canada in the bag that they didn't even bother to sign treaty with British Columbia first nations. And so when you take a look at how much that has come back in law to really bite them, um, and that some of our greatest judgments Um, from the Supreme Court of Canada that have really recognized the inherent rights of Indigenous people uh, to land, um, to um, uh, hunting and fishing, to Mm -hmm. how we utilize land, and also like the obligation and the onus of duty to consult. Many of those came out of uh, a place where it was unceded territory and the crown Mm. was found to to have to acknowledge it and so i i love the history of uh west coast uh indigenous people because i think that that um ignorance of canada in terms of thinking they already had it all um you know british columbia like first nations living in the area of british columbia have really brought them to task and that's a beautiful thing uh, in terms of our development, our development of Indigenous law uh, within the Canadian context. Yeah, no, I actually had no idea that that was like, they just kind of like gave up on the West Coast. And we're like, oh, we already have majority. And here it is. Like, I ha- actually had no idea. So you learn something new every day. Um, and I, I think a lot of Canadians fail to recognize that we are all treaty people. We know we all. Um, so could you explain that term of like, we are all treaty people? Because I think before I made a post on Instagram, I was saying exactly that. And a lot of people were just like, oh, I thought this was only for Indigenous people. And so what is the context of we are all treaty people? So uh, being treaty people means that, you know, in our own ways, because certainly when we were signing treaties as Indigenous people, we didn't have a governmental structure the same way that non-Indigenous people did. They had Mm -hmm. their uh, elected officials according to their processes. And we had, for us, either hereditary or people that we had decided had the rightful ability to make those decisions on behalf of the community. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we, you know, those leaders uh, came together and signed these documents that not only held themselves accountable, but also held their nations Mm. accountable. And as a non-Indigenous settler, if you still acknowledge the power and authority of the crown and of the state, then you are, in fact, a treaty person, because that is who signed those treaties on your behalf. Um, And as we do, as we recognize that we've inherited what our forefathers have done for us and had to do for us to keep us safe, Um, to keep our lands protected, it needs to be recognized. And absolutely, I think that sometimes they think that it was a very one-sided treaty. Yeah, yeah, that's how it feels. Indigenous people (laughs) are the only ones responsible. (laughs) 
for it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm like, no, it's like entire nations and relationship building. And I know we touched briefly on like dismantling the Indian Act, but I'm curious to know, like, what are actual tangible ways to support the dismantling of the Indian Act? Like what would have to take place or what would have to happen to make that happen? Oh, you know what? It, it's going to be an uphill battle. And I have no qualms about saying that one of the fundamental reasons it will be an uphill battle is because the Indian Act uh, outlines how we are to have elected government. Um, and that is by means of a very non-Indigenous system um, that mm -hmm. is, for all intents and purposes, our band chief and council, uh, who are therefore funded by the Canadian government. Um, and so trying to dismantle that piece of legislation, when in essence, it gives the power to the people who would have the political means um, to put pressure on the government to dismantle it. It's, mm -hmm. This is why we are where we are right now is because of that, how that power structure has been built um, and has been funded by the Canadian government. And it's honestly, it's a really beautiful thing when we have um, stories and of First Nations across Canada who have taken up those hereditary lines of how um, their original authority was to be given within their communities. And you see that in almost every circumstance, um, a band chief elected uh, under the provisions of the Indian Act exists mm -hmm. and purport to have the authority of the people, even though in many communities, not even half of the individuals in those communities come out to vote. Um, in band elections, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they say that they represent the people, but then you'll see an, a side uh, beside them is also the traditional governance. And when you take a look in issues, especially conflicts with the law, who the people look to for direction, who they look to for advice, who they look to when they're, when they're in, you know, uh, coming against uh, conflict with the Canadian government, especially in defense of their lands or defense we've heard about, we've all heard about it, what's who it's in blockades and uh, the Haudenosaunee in Caledonia. Um, they look to the longhouse, they look to the elders and the people um, who have that traditional authority to guide them further. And I think mm -hmm. that that speaks to, in a sense, our blood um, in terms of how we view um, legitimacy, how we view as Indigenous people legitimacy. And I can tell you that in those communities where they have their traditional structures, legitimacy absolutely does not come through provisions of the Indian Act. Well, that that was going to be my next question, because I think um, when I was learning about the Indian Act, you know, I thought like in my own ignorance, that chief and council system was like traditional when I was a little kid, because that's what I grew up seeing. And then when I learned about the Indian Act, and I realized like, chief and council was introduced through the Indian Act, and was actually like a very colonial system in the regards of, you know, all of a sudden, this created power and structures and hierarchies within our own communities. And, you know, 
to the point of sometimes corruption because I feel like chief and council, like they're kind of implementing like the the laws within the Canadian constitution. I don't know if I'm saying this right, correct me if I'm wrong, but like would it take returning to traditional governance to um, dismantle the Indian Act? Um, or is there any power by having a chief and council system? I, you know, that's really interesting because I think what it comes down to, um, and I can see, you know, many young people, the next generation as being uh, so knowledgeable about what's gone on and so much more willing to strip those trappings of colonialism uh, and push forward. And I really think that it's going to take a situation um, where either Indigenous people, entire communities refuse to go out and vote, for example. In, I would love to see a situation where not one single Indigenous community uh, member goes out to vote for chief and council. Um, mm. And then they have to submit those. They have to submit those polls to Indian Affairs uh, or whatever name they have for it now. It keeps changing every year, um, but have to submit those to the federal government. And there is, I think, a, going to be a crisis in legitimacy uh, when that happens. Um, and then, you know, also if you know a community. Um, is under the situation where they know that people are going to go out and vote, then there needs to be that strength in saying we are only going to elect and then we're going to hold them to it. We're only going to elect a chief and council that uh, agrees to dismantling the Indian Act. Um, and if we can get to that point where that becomes a passion um, and we recognize that as being a right of our people to dismantle a system that was posed on us, um, then I think that, you know, growing movements um, in the next generation, especially, uh, we're going to see some huge changes in terms of how we are governed and how our systems work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, for every, for every community, it'll be different. You know, I believe that there are those communities uh, who may go back to the traditional forms of uh, authority and the traditional forms of leadership. And then I think that there will be other communities who may not be ready to do that. And if they don't, at least however it is that they structure themselves, it won't be under uh, the watchful eye and direction of Big Brother right? Where at least they will be able to enact uh, what it is that they feel comfortable with moving forward into the future um, without being directed in a very patronizing way um, by the Canadian government. Mm. Do you think the same thing needs to happen within our own colonial system? Like, would you say that we need to refuse to vote within the Canadian federal uh, system? You know, that's really interesting. It's a really, and that's been broached to me before. And I've always thought, you know, I had, there's such two conflicting ways to, to view it. Because if we truly see ourselves as being a separate nation, um, we, you know, we would not allow a non-Indigenous person um, to vote in our band elections or our traditional elections or however it is that we uh, place a person into authority, we would not let them participate in that. Um, 
so that's one way of looking at it in terms of justifying not voting. Uh, but then there's another way that you can look at it in the sense that how we govern our nation as Indigenous people uh, truly follows that idea of the wampum where because ultimately I feel like many Indigenous communities, it's about, you know, how do we live in harmony? How do we take care of ourselves, each other, our youth? Nothing that we do affects fundamentally non-Indigenous groups and societies in the sense of, you know, um, mining and in the sense of <laughs> mass logging. And these are just examples of how the way that non-Indigenous groups, their, the decisions made by their government drastically um, mm -hmm. can affect Indigenous communities. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, when you have a situation where um, well, they don't vote in what we do because nothing that we do affects them. Well, actually, the inverse is true for us because mm. a lot of how a non-Indigenous society works has serious and real consequences for us as Indigenous people, which almost you know, supports the idea of us needing to vote because that's the way that we have our voices heard in a system that really does affect us in so many different ways. So, I mean, I'm, I can't answer that, but though that would be my two different ways of viewing it. And I feel like, you know, in one election, I take one position and in the other election, I take the other position <laughs> and I let myself do that, you know, but those, those are kind of the ideologies that I lean on when I make that decision at that time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important because it's like both are true. Like it's the both end paradigm of realizing like both realities exist. And yes. I've been having a lot of conversations with some of my friends of, you know, activism looks different in many ways. And I even noticed within our own community is that sometimes we disagree with like what another person's activism looks like. For example, like when you're an indigenous person running for parliament. And so it's like, I like I don't I honestly don't think like people want to run for parliament when you're indigenous because there's just like so much work to be doing but then it's like how do we how do we start to change the system in, unless we're represented within it and so yeah I'm curious to know your thoughts on like indigenous people taking up space in colonial places oh uh, yeah and absolutely I would acknowledge that I am uh, a person an indigenous person who takes up that space uh, within a very colonial structure of law. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I definitely get the sense that um, sometimes knowledge is power and sometimes, you know, knowledge is heartbreaking um, because there, there is a real recognition for me when I work with clients um, that this structure is not built for our people. Um, it's not built to accommodate uh, Indigenous viewpoints, Indigenous ways of living. Mm -hmm. um, and so when there are specific legal problems uh, that come to me and what I know and what I practice is a very non-Indigenous set of rules and set of um, roles, it's you know, I'm forced to, because that's my job, is to provide that information um, to them and then also help them to navigate it. Um, but to be in that situation where you recognize uh, how much 
being in this place does not align with who you are as an Indigenous person. Mm. There are definitely those dates where you struggle more uh, because you question, you question it, but then you know, there's this, as you said, and I feel like that's such a good way to term it, this other reality that's equally as true is that we are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. We are having our children taken into child welfare and astronomical disproportionate numbers. There has to be Indigenous people working in that system to try and get our people out of it. Yeah. Um, and so it that is how I look at it in terms of my role within it is to create and to incite that change. Um, and so that's, you know, why ALS does a lot of the reform, the legal reform work we do is to try to create broad systemic change for Indigenous people in how they're treated under non-Indigenous law. Mm, that was gonna be my next question because you've been in your career for a little bit now and I'm curious to know um, is it changing within the system because I think a lot of Canadians fail to recognize like just for example Justin Trudeau is like this is a dark chapter of our history not knowing like is the entire foundation that Canada has been built upon has been built upon the lives of Indigenous people and Indigenous children and so do you see um, any kind of hope within the system that is changing or do you see even more Indigenous people taking up spaces in law. Um, yeah. What does it look like on your end? Um, you know, it's, uh, I believe that um, the Canadian government is changing in the sense of giving more power to uh, Indigenous communities to operate um their own child welfare to be able to mm. hold more power um, in deciding how their still chief band elections are going to run under the Indian Act, but allowing them uh, more power to determine how that will happen. So it's this gradual uh, seeding of power to Indigenous people, not because I think that they truly want to, um, but mm -hmm. because they recognize that what they've done in the past, which is take away absolute all power and to try to assimilate us into a broader society has so epically failed um, yeah. and has led to dire consequences for indigenous communities, children, families. Um, and yet we're still here and still not assimilated. Um, mm -hmm. so it's coming to this acceptance of they're not going anywhere. And what we've done has <laughs> not worked. So <laughs> it's this gradual release of power. Um, but at the same time, and at the same token, um, we cannot, um, give in to just what they give us. We need to take it for ourselves. And I think that the true shift of where we're going to see true change come is when we can stand up and really take that power for ourselves and not settle for just these little tiny uh, crumbs and tidbits that they give us.
Yeah, no, I think um, you touch on a lot of great points. And I think that sometimes uh, we get excited because we're like, oh, like, finally, they are doing this one thing for us. But I feel like sometimes it's from a place of performance. And because they have been pressured from the public, and for example, like cancel Canada Day, like, I feel like that was the biggest we ever saw Indigenous and non-Indigenous people come together collectively for our own like generational healing and to pave a pathway forward uh, together. And I think what came after that, I don't know if it was, um, I don't know. There's just like a lot of things that the government are doing right now that I'm like, uh, is this because it's just been a lot of pressure from non-Indigenous communities for now? Or is this because you're actually like owning up to your mistakes and you do want to see um, Indigenous people, um, you know, you want to be in reconciliation if we have to use that word, even though I don't like that word. Um, (laughs) And one thing that I actually, (laughs) one thing I've been uh, working with my friend, I don't know if you know, Mumalak uh, Kakwak, she's a a MP for Nunavut, Mm -hmm. but um, I actually flew out to Ottawa this past weekend. We're putting pressure on uh, the government to start to, um, pretty much he's asking for an independent prosecutor to put um, these priests, like to get, a court case going to have these priests own up and take responsibility for the harm that they committed within the communities in Nunavut. And so I don't know if this is like far-fetched, but could you actually see this happening or like that, that's what I have a hard time understanding because, you know, we get the collective all together and we put pressure collectively, but then I feel like sometimes it's not even represented in like the house of commons. And so I don't know, like how, how can we make sure that our actions are actually being like implemented in parliament? So when it comes to the House of Commons, I think it's one thing for the government to decide that they're going to give um, a certain sense of power or a certain sense of um, uh, ability for First Nations to govern themselves, but it's at the directive of the government, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's Mm -hmm. very different when you realize that the legislature, the executive part of the government has to change um, and that the power... Uh, has to change from within. And so it's not just the government deciding and then directing. It's actually that the government shares power within the people and the House of Commons who make those decisions. And I think those are two very different things um, Mm. that I think has contributed to the failure of the House of Commons to be able to truly make our people feel welcome within its halls. Um, exactly. You know, and I think that when it comes to um, appointing of a prosecutor or how the um, remains of these Indigenous children are going to be dealt with, I think that the, the reason that we saw um, non-Indigenous people come together with us is because mass graves of unmarked uh, bodies, children, that is a hallmark of genocide. Like, Never Mm -hmm. mind the cultural genocide that we've said has been occurring. Never mind. Like this is physical genocide um, that occurred to Indigenous people that we have been trying to say for years occurred. Um, And now they have the physical proof of it, not just the stories, but the actual physical proof. And Mm -hmm. I think that for Canadian people, it, is dumbfounding to them um, that this happened and that it was the church 
that and mostly the Catholic Church um, that was yeah. responsible for this. And absolutely, I think people need to be held responsible. There needs to be an absolute independent uh, prosecutorial inquiry that's done and charges should be laid. Um, because at the end of the day, I, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, if this is a hallmark of genocide, um, then we should be referring it to an international prosecutor and we should bring them to the Hague and have them tried. Okay, that, I'm as, glad. And, and have, yeah, and have them tried as perpetrators of crime in the international sense of being criminals. Um, because that is uh, truly what happened. And, and truly, uh, that's the type of consequences they should be facing. Well, you you just like kind of answered my question because that was going to be my next question is because um, my, my cousin, Bruno, uh, he spoke on Cancel Canada Day and he was asking for Canada to be brought to the international courts for apartheid and genocide. And he he's asking actually to team up with Indigenous lawyers. So, I mean, I can give you his info at the end of this podcast. But, um, <laughs> it, is, is that, <laughs> that was going to be my next question is something like that actually um possible if like a group of indigenous lawyers were to team up is that is that tangible (laughs) so there is a um agreement or accord uh from the international courts that any any genocide or aspects of genocide can't be investigated um automatically uh post a certain date and I want to say it's either 1980 or 1990 but it's definitely um within a time period that the majority of of what happened with our communities and residential schools happened before that so if they were going to investigate or prosecute that at the international level it would require an invitation Um, to do so as opposed to an automatic where they kind of have that authority to be able um, to do that. And so I think, you know, again, that means that Canada's government is going to have to um, come to terms with that word genocide. And I don't think that they've done that. They haven't even said it anywhere. Like they don't say genocide. They what, what word do they use? Have they used cultural genocide? I actually don't know. I don't I don't believe so. It was no. certainly part. It's been certainly part of commissions and reports that have gone in that have stated unequivocally like mm-hmm. this is what that is. Um, but for the government and the government has issued, you know, apologies for what's gone on, but never have they taken that word specifically and utilized it as a recognition of what happened. Well, because then they would be accountable. And I think that's when they would have to go to international courts. <laughs> uh, that was gonna. So the Catholic Church, that's another thing. Um why do you think that they haven't released the records? Because I'm under the impression that they haven't. The Catholic Church uh, has a history of being holier than thou. Where right, right, right. They do not feel <laughs> as though uh, they have to subscribe um, to the same rules as everybody else. Or um, if God is on their side that they have to apologize uh, for their actions done in the God's name. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, I think, has led to 
a certain inability of the church to move forward uh, from any of this. And which is why all of this is still sticking to them. And I truly feel, especially uh, with these indigenous children, um, that many Catholic people are, you know, uh, conceded residential schools, you know, weren't great for Mm -hmm. indigenous people and Mm -hmm. that some bad stuff might have happened. Um, but now it's, there is without any doubt that, uh, real suffering and trauma occurred. Um, and so now I'm seeing pushback from even Catholic groups against their leaders and starting to question, um, the leadership of the Catholic church and, you know, the refusal of the Pope to apologize is is so detrimental yeah it's beyond me how rude and um but and such a denial um to people who survived that well it goes to show like how people don't view indigenous people as real people at the end of the day i think that's why like they're okay with being racist or they're okay with not apologizing it's because in the eyes of the canadian government they'd even treat us like human beings so it's kind of like I see it as like a trickle effect throughout humanity, but isn't like, isn't a part of the Catholic church. You're supposed to like forgive yourself for your sins, or you're supposed to like say your sins out loud and to get forgiveness. So that's where I'm kind of confused. Cause isn't that just what you have to abide by? <laughs> well, and, and so this is the interesting part is that um, when you take a look at um, the Catholic church as being more than anything else, a capitalist business um, where nobody truly knows the, um, assets of the Vatican or what the Catholic Church is really, truly worth. Um, And you take a look at the fact that, uh, for example, um, Ireland has uh, a really controversial history with the Catholic Church, not in so much as their faith, because Mm -hmm. a lot of Irish um, are still very, very devoted to Catholicism. Um, But in terms of what the Catholic Church did to many children and women um, and young men in Ireland in terms of the schools, the training schools, um, in terms of the Magdalene laundries, um, in terms of essentially imprisoning people for all sorts of uh, violations, moral violations, and uh, they went through awful awful things at the hands of the church. And yet, when you take a look at it from a business sense, the Pope went and apologized uh, for what Mm -hmm. the church had done in Ireland. But you also take a look at the fact that the Irish people still give to the church and are a source of wealth to the church because of the fact that so many of them are still Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see, you know, how that may have influenced uh, the Catholic Church and the Pope to do an apology and to offer an apology. And you take a look at how Indigenous people in Canada, how we were treated by the Catholic Church, and how many of us, not all of us, but many of us have uh, thrown off those types of religious trappings on us and have rejected Catholicism. Um, and you see that we hold less value as monetary value. We hold less monetary value right. for the Catholic Church. So why should so why should the Pope 
um, apologize. There's no benefit. And in right. fact, there's only when he takes a look at a pros and cons call um, column, there's only detriment to apologizing and acknowledging that the Catholic Church did this, right? Mm -hmm. So when you take a look at it as the Vatican really being just this really successful business um, that still perpetuates, um, you understand more that their decision not to apologize is not some moral compass that they're following. It's this idea that we're not worth it monetary-wise. Right. Uh, and that's an awful way to look at uh, your own actions and the actions of those priests and those nuns. It's a terrible, awful way to look at it. And I think it speaks to the fundamental principles um, of how that system uh, works. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to, yeah, the effects of colonization and capitalism. It's just like literally um, removing you from what it means to be human. It's removing you from your compassion and your empathy and your like oh, human absolutely. connection. And it just, it goes to show like how important reclaiming indigenous values and, you know, reclaiming an indigenous lens and worldview is so much needed for humanity right now, especially during times where we're feeling so separate from one another and the pandemic. And yeah, I, I had no idea that that was like, that's what confused me. But you you just made it way more clear for me and now i'm like okay now that we know now now that now that we know more of the mess where do you think we should be what do you think needs to be done like for, for indigenous people to support um our healing and our process and for non-indigenous people to support our healing and our process i think for indigenous people it's coming back to um making sure that sometimes the things that we do in our daily lives that we question um, or that make us feel not right. Um, a lot of times where I've really um, taken the time to sit down and process how I feel about certain things, I realize that it's a teaching that I received from my parents or from my grandparents. And it's not a teaching um, that is circumscribed by our indigeneity or our traditional culture. It's a teaching of colonialism and it's meant uh, for me to feel bad. It's meant for, it was meant for my parents to feel bad and for their parents to feel bad about who they were as indigenous people. And so I feel like this process of decolonizing ourselves is like this incremental um, stripping away um, that from ourselves mm. and reclaiming for our own peace of mind um, the teachings that you know and sometimes I think we forget how how honored and privileged we are to to be indigenous and to have a culture that is so loving mm -hmm. so loving and so harmonious in many ways and uh, so beautiful um, and how much that's been disrupted um, by non-Indigenous beliefs um, and systems. And so I, I love this decolonizing ourselves and to mm. identify those areas of our life that we're not feeling good about and then being able to trace those back to that's them. They put that on me. Like they put that on my parents, my grandparents, and then choosing um, to move forward without that teaching, putting, taking mm. that out of your basket, right? Taking that teaching out of your basket and putting it away. 
Um, and then only moving forward uh, with those things, those thoughts, those feelings, those ways of living um, that feel good to you. And for me, um, those are the ways of living that's been taught to me by elders. Um, and I think that one of the biggest affects of COVID um, has been a huge loss in access to our elders um, and to be able to sit with them and to listen to those teachings. And I know from my clients, um, it has been really difficult for mental health. It's been really difficult for spiritual and emotional health. And I, I'm so glad that it looks like we're turning a corner uh, where finally we can get back to uh, living in community because I feel like for Indigenous people especially, we live in community. So yeah. COVID has totally taken so many aspects of that away from us. And it's it, it's been so harmful. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to getting back into those situations where we can sit in ceremony again together and, and sit in uh, community together. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you say like, um, you got to decolonize like your life, you got to decolonize your mind. And I think you even have to decolonize your perception and, uh, the way you speak to one another. Um, and really it is coming back to community. And I feel like, yeah, this pandemic has been super hard because it's really taking us away from the one thing that we need the most. And that's usually one another. And so for non-Indigenous people wanting to support, um, us. I, have always truly appreciated um, when non-Indigenous people have identified themselves as allies um, and have taken the time um, not only to come to me and to ask me for education, because I don't always believe that's our responsibility to educate yeah. every single non-Indigenous person who comes to us, um, but really appreciating uh, those people who have done that work already. Um, where they have taken the time to read the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry Report, where they've actually taken the time to read the volumes. Um, there's a lot of volumes, even the summary of the Truth and Reconciliation <laughs> Commission <laughs> will take you quite a while. <laughs> uh, Senators and Claire was very, <laughs> very fulsome in covering um, the, in the TRC. And so taking those times to read RCAP, uh, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, and to read the media, um, and educate yourself on the issues. I think it is a beautiful thing when you actually, because it's not just about in the moment saying, I want to help. It's actually, you've taken the time personally um, yeah. to set aside for us to learn our struggles, our history. Um, and that to me is true allyship when you come with a foundation of knowledge mm. um, because you've taken that time to educate yourself. Um, and I mean, like that, I've seen people, there is an excellent course uh, that comes out of the University of Alberta, I believe, on yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Indigenous people. And a lot of Canadians have signed up for that course. It's free. Um, we have all of these reports, inquiries, commissions that have been done and that are publicly available online. And I 
knowledge is power and for an ally to really arm themselves um, with, uh, you know, our histories is a part of also fulfilling your role as a treaty person. Um, so not mm. only do you do us a service by understanding those issues, but also you're living up to your responsibilities as being the other part of that treaty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to we are all treaty people. And so I'm curious to know, like when you start to look forward in for the next 2021, what does your uh, 2021 look like? And what do you want Indigenous futurism to look like? I would love um, for it to look like um, uh, starting to reclaim our positions uh, in society as um, educated, for me in my specific line of work, is educated uh, with knowledge to be able uh, to fight back when you need to. Mm. Um, for me, I see a lot of individuals who are in custody, um, who have interactions with police, uh, who have interactions with the state when it comes to child welfare. Um, and there is, a, I feel, a lack of knowledge and willingness to assert themselves under the law um, because I, that is the colonial power structure um, that they've grown yeah. up with and that they've been exposed to. And so uh, gradually we are recognizing the racism that is so intrinsic in so many institutions, whether or not it's in medicine, uh, whether or not it's in corrections, and we're seeing how rampant racism is in all of those institutions. And so for me, I feel like my 2021 and how I see futurism is by taking away and fighting back against all of those uh, racist structures and individuals who are Indigenous coming forward to say, I'm going to hold you accountable. Um, and I would love to see more of that accountability um, because it's not okay and it's not all right. Um, that we're afraid to go into hospitals, that we're afraid um, for when we see police, that we're afraid of saying we need help because we're mm. afraid that somebody's going to come and take our children. Um, mm. We have a right to be treated uh, with respect and without prejudice. And that, I think, is where I will focus my attention in 2021 is in um, dismantling that. And, you know, hopefully in my own little actions in that in 2021, it helps to contribute um, to the strength of our societies as we move forward uh, in the future. Yeah, I think there's uh, so much work to be done within these systems and recognizing like sometimes it feels like there's so much work and we're only one person, but there's just so much power when um, you have that vision. And so I'm curious to know, like, what would be your advice for the younger generation out there that maybe wants to get into law? Um, I think, you know, I think I really loved how you had stated earlier that you uh, acknowledged that you know so much more about the Indian Act than the treaties. Um, I think even identifying what you don't know and uh, not being afraid to say, like, that's what I want to go get and then going to do it. 
Um, that I think is a um, lesson and a sage word of advice uh, for people uh, who are younger generation coming up and who want to take on greater roles um, uh, to be helpers um, in our society. Mm -hmm. And lawyers, definitely, it's a uh, it's a tough gig. It's a lot of hours. Um, it's a lot of hours, but it's also incredibly fulfilling um, in the sense mm -hmm. of being uh, being that helper, that advocate for the for the person who's come to you because they don't know how to navigate the system, and you know how to do it for them. Uh, it's a great mm -hmm. honor to be able to do that every day. So my advice. Um, in terms of lawyers specifically is if you can to find a mentor um, to try to talk to somebody who's uh, indigenous and who's working in law, um, if you can find somebody who's working in the specific type of law that you want to practice. And if you can't find an indigenous mentor, you just go out there and you do it yourself and then you become a mentor right. for the next generations. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, there are so many firsts for us right now. And uh, what I would just overwhelmingly say to Indigenous youth is you absolutely can do it. Yeah, trailblazing, trailblazing. I know who I'm going to call when I need a mentor or I get in trouble. <laughs> so, uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Caitlin, for all your knowledge. I, I have I still have so many questions, honestly, like I didn't even ask anything about like the prison system. And like, the, like, I feel like we could have our own talk show here going. Um, but maybe I'll put that in my next um, next thing that I write up. I was going to say, it'll be like volume two. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I feel like I already need you back here because, yeah, I still have so many questions, but I've already learned a lot through this uh, episode, and I hope each one of you did as well. Um, if you just want to let people know how they can support you with your work um, and everything that you're currently up to. Um, I definitely think it's check out our website. We have a brand new website with Aboriginal Legal Services that has the different areas of law that we practice and we try to update it as much as possible with the areas um, that are the current issues that we're working and litigating in. Um, definitely take a look around you wherever you are in Canada um, at the grassroots movements um, that are happening. Um, identify yourself as an ally. If you're Indigenous, get involved um, and make the time. Make the time to go out there and, and to uh, have your voice heard uh, because it's important that even in law and the work that we do, that we have the support of the people and that we know we're heading in the right direction. So keep speaking uh, and keep demanding to be heard. Hi, hi. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Have a blessed day. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I would love your feedback. Follow me on Instagram at Shayla0h at matriarch.movement. And don't forget to subscribe on the pod platform of your choice and review and rate where possible. I'll be back in a week. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>